Now grab your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6. We don't look at three verses, and really we're, we're not going to exegete them. Um, trust you'll be somewhat familiar with the context. This, this is what leads to Noah's ark. Uh, so Genesis chapter 6. And so this is like page 5 of your Bible. Um, and I, I want to talk about evil. It may be a, a, an odd subject, but uh, this is going to take us at least two weeks to look at this. And um, I think it should be obvious why. I, I've, I don't watch a lot of television, particularly news. One of the best things for my spiritual life is to get rid of that. But I'm all over social media as a millennial. And because of my role in politics, I'm, I particularly follow a lot of craziness. And it's interesting that our culture is talking about evil when our culture has tried to deny its, its existence. And I think it's important that Christians to be able to articulate what are we seeing? How do we think about it? Um, and so I want to do a, a, a brief theological understanding of evil. So Genesis 6, if you'll stand with me, we'll look at verses 5 and 7. My goal is not to talk about what you may be seeing in the news specifically, but hopefully when we look at the Bible, we can better understand what is happening now and what is going to happen next, whatever that may be. Uh, Moses writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father asked that uh, you would give us understanding, not just of this text, but of this world that we live in, um, that we do have to exegete not just your word, but also this culture so that we can better reach it. And there's no doubt we live in a dark, 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 dark world. And the answer to this dark world seems pretty obvious, and that is the hope that is found in Jesus. And yet it is so difficult to pierce through the walls of evil. Only grace will do that. As we see here with Noah, that he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And God, I ask that your grace will triumph today. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Seated. There's a great scene in the uh, second installment of The Lord of the Rings that Peter Jackson directed in the movie is called the two towers where the bad guys and in tolkien's world there's a clear good and a clear bad and the bad guys the Urukai under Saruman, all the all this will be on your quiz at the end uh, is attacking the kingdom of rohan and to protect themselves the kingdom of rohan flee to their mighty fortress called helm's deep and they, they are able to withstand the Urukai for a while, but now as, as, as morning is about to dawn, they, they are in within the fortress within the fortress. This is the last stand. There is only a door, not even a gate, standing between them and certain death. And, and everyone's asking the king that, that how is it that, that the walls have fallen, that, that we've been invaded? How is it that, that Helm's Deep always held back the enemy? And... I love King Theoden's answer in the movie. I think this is in the book as well. So much death, he said. What can man do against such reckless hate? I love that. Tolkien knew a thing or two about such reckless hate, such death. He, of course, was a survivor of World War I. 
And although he may have denied it, there can be no doubt his experiences in that horrific war showed up in his literature. That is to be expected. After all, if you, if you tell stories, you are told to write about what you know. And he knew the devastation of war and murder and violence and death. And, and what comes with it. Let me give you an example of this. In, in, in one of the, the books, it shows up in, in the movies where Frodo, uh, Sam, and Gollum are walking through the marshes, right? And there are the bodies there in the water. And, and there's a whole scene there. Every scholar understands that what Tolkien is sharing there is his experience in the war in the trenches, where you will go out into no man's land and there are bodies out there and you're in the trenches, there are just lifeless bodies there. And this was his way of bringing it into the text. And so what Tolkien saw was the depth of human evil, wickedness. And what can man do, he learned in that war, against such reckless hate? Of course, this isn't just something you see in literature, in fantasy uh, literature. It's not just something we saw in the 20th century. This has been a problem with humanity from, um, from the, the bite of, of that fruit that Adam and Eve did. This is a human problem. Let me give an example of this. I read recently a book. It's literally called The Biography of Jerusalem or Jerusalem, a biography. I can't pronounce the author's name, so forgive me. But it begins telling the story of the siege of Jerusalem in AD 70 when the Romans sacked it and destroyed the temple. It's horrific. I can't read you everything because this is polite company. Can I read you some of it? Just a small portion of it. Around the walls, there were gruesome scenes that must have resembled hell on earth. Thousands of bodies putrefied in the sun. The stench was unbearable. Packs of dogs and jackals feasted on human flesh. In the preceding months, Titus, who would soon be uh, emperor, had ordered all prisoners or defectors to be crucified. 500 Jews were crucified each day. The Mount of Olives and the craggy hills around the city were so crowded with crucifixes, there was scarcely room for any more, nor trees to make them. Titus's soldiers amused themselves by nailing their victims splayed and spread eagled in absurd positions. So desperate were many Jerusalemites to escape the city that as they left, they swallowed their coins to conceal their treasure, which they hoped to retrieve when they were safely clear of the Romans. They emerged, quote, puffed up with famine and swelled like men with dropsy, but if they ate, they burst asunder. The Romans would then wait until they burst asunder to steal the coins from the rotten bodies. What can man do against such reckless hate? If your temptation is to say, well, the Romans were just terrible, you need to go back a few months before all of this happened. After the death of Jesus, decades later, the zealots took over the city of Jerusalem. The zealots, of course, were domestic terrorists who were trying to liberate Israel from the Romans through guerrilla warfare. They mirrored in their eyes what the Maccabeans did in the times of the Greeks through guerrilla warfare and, again, what we would call domestic terroristic tactics, they can push the mighty Romans out. And they did for a time until the Romans came back with a bigger army. This time, Rome sacked all of Israel. This is actually how the historian Josephus got caught, one of the only person to survive his, his entire army that he led, and so was, was compelled into service of Rome. Right? And so Josephus was the one telling us everything that happened in Jerusalem. And so Rome went from town to town, village to village, killing everyone in their path. They were done with the Israelites. The zealots, yes, they pushed the, the, the Romans out. But the problem with the zealots is they weren't very unified. It became a battle among the zealots within the, 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 the city of who will now be king of the zealots. And so what you had was wild dogs running the city, like humans who were just crazy. And they're killing each other and killing innocent people and robbing and stealing. All the while, worship was still going on at the temple. It was a chaotic scene. Many saw the Romans as liberating them from their own Jewish zealots. 
What the Romans did was they waited until Passover to come when, when the city uh, more than doubled and it was packed in. And then they sieged the city so that more people would suffer and die as a result. I mean, reading this, I think, man, what can man do against such reckless hate? That is why when we turn on the news now, we read of decapitated babies. Read of rockets going from one border to another, using children and women and innocent people as shields. Nation against nation, murder, violence, hate, bigotry. Sometimes you wonder, like, how do we understand this? My, my goal here this evening and Lord really next, next Sunday evening is not to explain the existence of evil. That is the question of theodicy. Why is there evil? What I want us to do is to discuss what do we do with it now that it is here? We could talk all day about its origin. But how do we understand this world of evil that we live in? And, and what is the Christian worldview? What is a theology that we have? And how does our theology approach this? And I would argue that Christianity and only Christianity can really understand what to do with this. So what I want to look at is the first of three points. Forgive me. Uh, this is one sermon in two parts. And that is the reality of evil. The reality of evil. Knowing what to do with evil is not a new problem. However, what I have found in my study of world religions, history, and everything else is most people don't know what to do with it. And so what we usually do is, is we reduce it to some abstraction, to an illusion, or we try to relativize it. Or we may even just try to justify it. Let me give you a few examples of this. In Greek philosophy, Socrates argued that evil was nothing more than ignorance. Of course, if you fix ignorance, you solve evil. And you can see a little bit of America in that, can't you? We have turned prisons into rehabilitation centers. If we educate the criminal, they'll stop being criminal. Can I tell you something that a lot of people learn in prison? They learn how to be a better prisoner or how to be a better criminal. That is a problem with juveniles, by the way. That is a major problem that we have. Is they got caught the first time. It's hard to catch them the second time when they've had opportunity to not be so ignorant. But that was Greek philosophy. Zoroastrianism is, is a dualistic faith. You have a good and evil, and they're, they're equal, and they're at constant war with each other. So if you see something bad happen, the bad God won. If you see something good happen, the good God won. By the way, I find a lot of Christians buying into that sort of rhetoric. I've told the story before that there was a tragic uh, car accident in Breckenridge County that two teenagers died. It was a very, very serious and tragic thing. Our church was involved in ministering to some of the families there because the connection to the church. And I was visiting one, one lady, and as it is in small towns so where if one thing happens, everyone thinks that they should have an opinion and share it. And, and this lady says, well, people ask me all the time, why would God let that happen? I just say, don't you know there's a devil in here? And sometimes the devil does bad things. And I thought, man, I, I wish God wasn't so weak. Because we're not dualists. We're monotheists. We're Trinitarian. Right? Yes, I believe in the devil. We'll get to that. But, but we're not Zoroastrian. We're not dualist here. And that, that's, that, that's how Zoroastrians understand it. Then there's Buddhism where evil is the product of desire. If you get rid of desire, you get rid of evil. Or Christian science, which is neither Christian nor scientific, by the way. Uh, there's a Christian science church in Louisville near the old, uh, near, in St. Matthew's near the old Walden Christian books, if you all remember that. Um, and uh, they argue that evil is an illusion. Pain is an illusion. Suffering is an illusion. And by the way, that may sound silly to you and I, but when you're in the middle of grief, deep grief, loss, sorrow, pain, and suffering, it seems liberating to be told that it is all an illusion. And like that, you can be freed of it. 
And then there's what we can look at as postmodern secularism. That's my language. I would add the word pagan in there somewhere. That is the evil is demoted to the category of relativism and personal experience. We relativize evil. In fact, I think the problem is we have, in, in, in secularism, there is no category of evil. When atrocious acts are committed, one of the things you'll find in the secular West, we've done this in recent weeks, we are quick to utilize the language of evil and wickedness, but none of us in the secular West, it seems, can define it. Why is this act evil, but this other act isn't? Do you notice, I've tried to avoid uh, uh, what you see in the news uh, uh, because everything comes with it, but a Planned Parenthood was bombed over in Gaza. Did you see this? Did you see that? And you see the irony of it, right? right? Because Planned Parenthood is, is imported from America. And it's, it's atrocious that the Planned Parenthood was, was bombed in a city overrun by people who are killing babies, <coughs> right? So, so why is one act evil, the, 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 the capication, the, the murder of babies, but the other category, the murder of babies, isn't evil? You see the relativism. You see our inability to define it. In fact, I think most in the secular pagan West, at the end of the day, we reject the notion of evil. You watch what happens is whenever the West rediscovers the word evil, it won't be long before they start using other words or blaming the other side that we think is good or now bad somehow. Like it's, it's, we, we really don't know what to do with it. Because whether we want to admit it or not, something like evil is a theological category. This is theology we're talking about. And thus, without a theology, we can't really understand it. You can't have a theology without a theos, without God. And this is why secular philosophy, which has pushed God out of the conversation, really struggles to know what to do with it. Think about it, that secularism begins with evolution. And if evolution is the universal asset we've been told that it is, it must carry the burden of explaining what evil is. That is a serious problem. Because now what you have is all we are are animals, all we are is stardust, all we are 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 materials. And what motivates us aren't moral categories, it's natural categories. Think about it. Right now, somewhere in Africa, a lion is devouring a wildebeest. And none of us would come to that lion and say, Mr. Lion, Mufasa, that's not nice. It's not nice. I don't know what the wildebeest did to you. But we don't act like that in polite company. We're not going to hold the lion accountable. The other lions aren't going to put the lion on trial. We're not going to send, the wildebeest aren't going to send a strongly worded letter in the local newspaper about the violence of the lions on the other side, right? None of that happens. The lion does it because he's a lion. We get that. However, if something violent happens among humans, all of a sudden we apply certain moral categories. We use words like guilt, crime, right, wrong. But where do those ideas come from, particularly when evolution is involved? Can you not say, of course, I got rid of my neighbor, survival of the fittest. Of course, I get rid of someone who's a threat to my Welfare, survival of the fittest, no different than the lion or anyone else. Evolution wants us to believe that we are merely animals. A dog is a pig, is a cat, is a human. Therefore, it struggles with moral categories. In fact, one of the problems we've had in the secular West is the eradication of, of the language of sin. 
This is most evident in our loosening of morals and traditions. I mean, go, go to whatever is your idea of the Christianized West, whatever year that was, okay? And then come to today. Do you see a difference? Uh, I'll give you an example, fun example. Um, um, I think we were going to church this morning, driving in Owington. And I was trying to explain that uh, when I grew up, if we, went, if we went out of town, let's say Florence Mall, okay, we needed shoes for school. Mom and dad would have to pre-approve of our attire, and flip-flops was not allowed, right? Um, because there was a certain expectation that when you go out the door, you have to present yourself to the rest of the world. And so when my parents were raised, that was more strict. When my grandparents were around, I was trying to tell the kids that when my grandfather would take us out to eat in Warsaw, look, and there's no one fancy in Warsaw, let's be honest, we would dress up. He would take a shower, he would put on cologne, he would shave, he would do all this sort of stuff. And we're just going to the bun boy uptown. Why is that? Well, there was an understanding of how you presented yourself rooted in a moral worldview. That's a fun little example. But we understood what male and female was. We understood what masculine and feminine meant. We understood what was good and bad, right and wrong. The family was important, uh, and, 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 and society had to have a structure that, that uh, uh, empowered the family and, and was rooted in them. We understood all that. Now, what is it? It's a mess. It's an absolute mess. And part of the problem is we don't have the category of sin. And as a result, we are running out of boundaries to cross. Even more so, we see this in how we raise our children. We no longer see children as sinners in need of reform but as innocent souls in need of protection, I recommend bubble wrap. Have you noticed that? If you were to say something harsh to little Johnny, and little Johnny's not your son, mama's going to come get you. You don't talk to my son like that. Yeah, but little Johnny's a terrible human being, and you need to know that. Right? We, 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 the ways we, we raise our children as if there isn't a category of sin. This behavior is unacceptable. This behavior is what I expect. We, we don't use that language anymore. And, and, and that is where we see how relativism is, is, being, is being applied. And we've seen this all, all over the news. Atrocities then become easily justifiable. I'm sure you've noticed this. When we can blame someone else, or something else, then we start justifying evil actions. Sure, killing babies is bad, but what about decades of subjugation? Sure, cities are burning, but what other recourse do marginalized communities have? Collectivism and relativism becomes a dangerous justification for evil. And I think Christianity has a better argument, a better answer to this issue of wickedness. Our concern, again, is not the origin of evil. We, we, we can chase that rabbit another day. But fundamentally, Christianity sees evil as something that is real. We don't justify it. We don't turn it into an abstract. It isn't an illusion, nor do we relativize it. We believe evil is real. It can be understood. It can be acknowledged. It can be declared, and it can be addressed. And it's because we recognize evil is real then we can attack it. But when you try to justify it, when you try to relativize it, when you try to write it off as something else, then you allow evil to spread and corrupt. So let me give you the two things Christianity has to say in this regard. First of all, evil is external. Evil is external. There's several categories here. For example, we have natural evil. 
These include things like natural disasters, death, famine, and other forms of evil outside of human responsibility. Romans 8, 22, for we all know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul's point is to say that from the fall of humanity, the cosmos itself is, is subjected to the fall. This is important because the temptation in the secular rest is to say evil lies over there. And Christianity comes and says no, evil lies everywhere. Even nature itself is subject to the fall. Now, this is not to su suggest that natural disasters um, um, are moral agents or to suggest that they are targeting people. I, I don't think that is the case at all. I'm reminded of a fun little story. This just popped in my head. Uh, there was a church that had a bar set up right across from it, and the church absolutely hated this bar. Okay? Couldn't stand there was a bar there. Just bothered nonetheless. So the church prayed, God, get rid of the bar. One day, lightning struck the bar, caught on fire, destroyed. Bar owner sued the church. So the case came before the judge, and the judge is reading the, the arguments of both sides. He goes, I don't know what to do with this. I've got a church that doesn't believe in the power of prayer, and I've got a bar owner that does. Right? Now, 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 when we talk about natural evil, we're not saying the moral agents, but it is to say and reminds us that in a fallen world, everything is corrupted. And that death and destruction and pain and suffering is our story. You can't escape it. One of the things I've found in America, because we've gotten spoiled and we're rich, is that many believe we can actually avoid this reality. I remember after, I think it was Katrina, I was listening to a talk radio as I was younger and dumb then. And, and I remember that caller after caller called in and says, you know, this Katrina thing has really scared me. Where can I go and not worry about natural disasters, tornadoes, hurricanes, fires, floods, droughts, famines, asteroids, whatever it is? And the dude on radio is like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Go to Kansas. You don't have to worry about hurricanes. Tornado's coming. Tornado's coming. Go up high. You won't have to worry about flooding. Tornado's coming. Go down low, right? Here comes the floods. Right? I mean, I, mom and dad live up on a hill. I remember mom once asking in the flood in 97, Dad, should we worry? You know, floods are just, is just tearing up our city. And he goes, if floods come in here, we're the last ones. We're the last survivors, right? We should have already left because we're up on the hill. However, when tornadoes come, we got real nervous. To this day, mom will say, I will never move anywhere unless there's a basement. Actually, we've lived on top of a hill our whole lives. We understand this, but yet it, we, we've convinced ourselves we can bypass this. But natural evil tells us that, that we can't. So creation, and I would say creatures ourselves, we, like creation, are groaning for redemption. Surely there is a better story to be told here. Surely someone wins in the end, and it is good news. Natural evil, uh, systemic evil, this is all under the category of external evil, systemic evil. Although the term has been redefined and I think abused, Christians have always understood that unjust laws, among other things, are evil, right? We don't want uh, injustice to prevail. This is why the Christian West has developed a number of radical ideas in the history of humanity to address the prevalence of governments, societies, and systems that often target outsiders in the weak. Think about it. Blind justice. Where did that come from? Not from the Egyptians. Not from the Canaanites. Where did equal rights come from? Where, what about civil liberties? Human rights. I was reading a book recently. There's a history of sort of a Christianity and its influence on the West. Um, and, but, but what intrigued me about the book and why I came to the book was I was listening to an interview the author did. And he said, um, I, I obsess over the Roman Empire. Like he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a, a, a historian of, 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 of 
of antiquity. So, so, so I love everything in the Roman Empire, but one day the thought struck me. I'm reading the Romans. He gave examples of just awful things the Romans did. I gave an example of Jerusalem 80, 70 earlier. But, but he, he's talking about what they would do with the children, how if, if, if a father didn't approve of the child that was just born uh, to him and his wife, he could expose the child. That is, he would take it out to the wilderness, leave it out there until, until the wild kills it. Right? I mean, it's just it's awful. That was normal. That was normal. Men weren't expected to be monogamous. In fact, you would bring a slave for the purpose of your own pleasure and workforce. I mean, this was common. Then you have gladiator games. You have the, 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 the military complex of trying to take over the world. I mean, it's, it's just awful setting. And he's reading all of this. He goes, why do I think this is bad? Because the Romans didn't. You ever thought about that? Why do I, as a secular person, I have no theology, no deep philosophy. I'm a secularist. Why does it bother me that they were okay with that? Because they, they found no problem with a bunch of strong dudes killing each other in arena or a weakling who did a crime out there trying to fight the strong dudes knowing that they're going to die or sending the Christians to be devoured by lions. Nero turned Christians into human candles, covered them in hot wax and lit them on fire so they'd last longer. No one had a problem with that. So he's asking himself, why do I have a problem with it? I'm not a Christian. And he realized Christianity changed everything. Categories of equal justice and human rights now exist and we take for granted. All of that changed when Christ walked out of that tomb. When governments, businesses, and people of power abuse such power for their own benefit or to suppress the weak and vulnerable, there is a word for that. To be clear, we must avoid tribal language. And this is my concern with a lot of Christians because politics has taken over. Is what we say is, well, of course, if you let the left run things, they're, they're, they're just evil. And what you end up doing is you end up justifying the evils on the right. By the way, the left does this. Is, is you blame all the evil on the right, all the while justifying the evil in your own camp. You don't know how many times I've had to point this out. Okay, Mr. So-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so, I get it. That other side, I can't believe they're doing that. That is evil. But can we talk for a minute some of the people in your own camp that, that you've given money to? You approve of that too? Yeah, but you know what? They're all for freedom, whatever that term means now. See how easy it was for us to justify things. It's not a biblical worldview. What about supernatural evil? Again, all under the category of, of external evil. The Bible recognizes supernatural evil. That does not mean that we should blame the devil for everything. At the same time, to ignore the supernatural seems to be a significant disservice. Maybe I'm just getting older. Maybe a little crankier, no doubt. But it seems to me that what we are witnessing in the world is deeper than just human evil. It's deeper than human evil. It's almost like there's a category beyond evil and we don't have a word for it. Have you felt that recently? Have you felt that? There seems to be something dark beyond this world at play. So long as Christianity dominated the West, we can convince ourselves, oh, we've got everything under control. But now as Christianity fades in the West, though it's growing in the East, it seems harder to ignore supernatural evil. You read the Bible. The Bible is clear that super, the supernatural world is as real as the natural world. And the two do collide. Ignoring supernatural evil does not make one enlightened. It makes them quite ignorant. We often think of supernatural evil with the bizarre and the outlandish, right, because of Hollywood. 
That's not fully what the Bible presents. There, there, there are some of that, of course. But most of it is what we could call the ordinary demonic. We've talked about this before. Take something like accusation, Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, where the devil is called the accuser. You can think about that, that accusation, false accusation is demonic. Is that a problem today? You bet your sweet bippy. And social media has just fed this. There's already in our hearts lies. Jesus says in John 8, 44, that the devil is the father of lies. Is lying a problem today? Yeah. I think I shared this a few weeks ago. That, that um, It used to be that, that when evidence presented to, uh, say, a president saying, you did this, they would have to get on TV and say, look, I'm guilty of this. I'm sorry. I'll try to do better. And, but they would admit to it. Now all you have to do is say, nuh-uh, nuh-uh, that's not true. And you can say, what about this and this and this and this and this? Nope, it's not there. I don't see it. Nuh-uh, nuh-uh, uh-uh. We just deny it. We're just gaslighting each other constantly. And lies are demonic. Through lies, you can talk people into doing a lot of atrocious things. Gossip, 1 Timothy 5, 11 to 15. Bitterness, Ephesians 4, 26. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Why? Because it stirs up bitterness. You'll give the devil a foothold. Is bitterness and anger and resentment and pride a problem in the United States of America? Yeah, it is. In fact, our worldview feeds it. You're the victim. You should be bitter about it. There's no room for forgiveness or healing from your trauma. What about violence? John 8, 44. The devil is the, not only the father of lies, but he is a murderer from the, from the beginning. It's amazing how quickly we have to justify violence so long as you're on the right side of the intersection. Idolatry, 1 John 5, 18 to 21. False religion, 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 2. Sexual sin, 1 Corinthians 7, 5. If only I can think of an example to fit that category. Foolishness and drunkenness, Ephesians 5, 8 to 21. These are ordinary demonic things. And is what we view as virtue now, all of them. Well, evil is external. Yes, I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. But the Bible will come along and say, not only is evil external, it's internal. And it is here we completely leave behind the paganism of our day. Secular postmodern tribalism always blames someone else. Society, our upbringing, parents, socioeconomics, foreign policy, history, the left, the right, or even my body. If you notice this, was it like 10 years ago we got the whole self-esteem cult? You remember, we had that for like a whole generation or two. I grew up with the self-esteem, right? You look in the mirror and say, you go, boy, you're the best. No one's better than you. You're awesome. Don't let anyone tell you any different. You're good. You're great. Don't worry about those grades. Don't worry about those critics. Don't worry about those bullies. You're awesome. You read a book. Watch Oprah. More cartoons because you're wonderful. You're beautiful. You're awesome. You're lovely. You remember that, right? I remember when I was a kid, I started crying because I couldn't tie my shoe. We were in a game, right, where we're, I, I, I mean, I was tiny. And this is the weirdest memory, probably my earliest memory. You had to take off all your shoes, like a church thing or a community thing. You had to find your shoe, put it on, tie your shoe, and the first person to do got candy. I didn't know how to tie shoes. I was the youngest kid here. And all the other kids could tie their shoes. They got candy. So I cried. I got candy. And I got more candy than everyone else. Wouldn't it be better if I learned to tie my shoes? <laughs> I did, huh? Yeah, but, you know, oh, there, 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 there. We don't want you to cry, right? You remember the self-esteem, but notice what's happened now. Now, it's, it's not that you need to be pumped up. The problem is you need to look in the mirror and realize that's not you. The problem is external. Expensive surgery will fix that. Pills will fix that. God has robbed you of your true identity with a body. 
What a switch. Oh, and while we're doing that, we're, telling, we're still doing the body positive thing. It's amazing that we live in this world of contradiction and we don't see it. When we speak of evil as internal, we have to talk about sin. And in secularism, there is no room for sin. This is most evident in, the, in, in our discussion of psychology. This is probably going to offend someone, I'm sure. In psychology, we will acknowledge people are sick. We will never acknowledge that they are sinners. What's the solution? See a therapist, talk about your past, blame your father, and take a pill. And then we wonder why people are never healed. Never healed. A pill cannot resolve spiritual sin. Just sin in general. Now, I'm not against some of that. I'm not. And I'm not saying throughout all your medicine. But consider for a minute how many mental illnesses we've added the last, what, 50 years? We push people towards therapists, towards doctors, and, and towards activism. You'll feel better when they pay for what they've done to you. You'll feel better when you, tell you, you, when, you, when you correct the politics of your parents on Thanksgiving, those bigots. You see, there's no category of sin, sickness. And I've noticed that a culture of consumers don't want you to be healed because then they can't profit off your sickness. We wonder why we're miserable. We're on more drugs now than we've ever been and we're more miserable for it. Now, I think it is appropriate to locate evil outside of us, yes, but we fail to understand fully without looking deep inside of our hearts. Evil does not begin with governments, poverty, or racism, or nature. It begins in the human heart. We looked at Genesis 6 earlier, just read it. You'll notice there that, that, that God says the, the intention of the human heart is evil continually. And the temptation here is to say, well, yeah, that was the generation where the sons of God came down with daughters of men, whatever that is, the Nephilim, whatever that is. And God took care of that. He drowned them all in, 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 in the waters. He saved Noah, which he found grace in. And then they all lived happily ever after. Well, if you want to, you can turn over to chapter 8. I'll read it to you. Chapter 8, verse 21. Guess what the text says? This is after Noah gets off the ark. It's just nine people there hanging out. When the Lord smelt the pleasing aroma, he said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, even though the attention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Same language, pre and post flood. You understand that God choosing not to flood the earth is itself an act of grace. It's the point of the story. Sin requires judgment, but God is a God of grace. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Turn on your television and see if you can explain it. Evil begins in the heart. We are born with a bent nature, left unaddressed, we will turn to countless devices of human wickedness and cause an enormous amount of suffering. And we cannot address the evil out there until we address the evil in here. Think about it. If you're going to complain about government, politicians are people, sinners. And guess who put them in positions of power? Sinners. Let me tell you, sinners won. Sinners love sin. They love to, to organize around the sin. They love to legislate their sin. They like to enforce their sin. It's the heart's. Well, this helps us understand the irrationality of hate, injustice, violence, and evil. So one of the things I like to do to people is, is, is when, they, when they complain about X and they're trying to understand why this happens, a lot of times I'll say, can we just agree that maybe you shouldn't kill people? 
Can, can, can we at least agree that maybe you shouldn't just burn cities to the ground? Right? Like simple stuff, whether you're on this side or that side, can we at least agree on the simple things? But we've gotten so used to justifying the acts of one because we're tribal. We don't like the other. In the movie Dark Knight, I, I absolutely love this scene. Um, this, it's a Batman movie, forgive me. But, there, but Bruce Wayne is trying to understand the depth of Joker's evil. If you don't like Batman, we'll be done here in 30 seconds. Bruce Wayne, this is to Alfred Pennyworth, his, his butler. Criminals aren't complicated, Alfred, he said. We just have to figure out what he's after. Do you notice the language that Batman bought into? It's, it's, it's that he's after something. It's a simple way to justify evil. What does the Joker want? What does he want? Money? Power? Influence? The scared people? What does he want? And if we can give him that, he'll be a good person. I love Alvin's response. With respect, Master Wayne, perhaps this is a man that you don't fully understand. A long time ago, I was in Burma. My friends and I were working for a local government. They were trying to buy the loyalty of tribal leaders by bribing them with precious stones. But their caravans were being raided in a forest north of, of Ragoon um, by a bandit. So we went looking for stones. But in six months, we never met anybody who traded with him. One day, I saw a child playing with a ruby the size of a tangerine. The bandit had been throwing them away. Bruce Wayne. So why steal them in the first place? This is, the, this, is, this is the best part of the movie. Well, says Alfred, because he thought it was good sport, because some men aren't looking for anything logical like money that can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. He's right. The butler got it right, not the billionaire. I think Tolkien is helpful here. I know not everyone's read it or watched the movies, but who's the real villain of, of the Middle Earth trilogy? Is it Sauron? Saruman? The Ring? What Tolkien does brilliantly is he, he gives a, a more robust understanding of evil. First of all, it is an external threat. You've got, you've got a guy over in Mordor with the volcano and the lava and the darkness, right? All of that sort of stuff. Very typical motifs that you get in such bad guy stuff. All he wants to do is kill and destroy and be powerful. That's typical. Saruman is even, he's a wizard who, who goes to the dark side and he, 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 he just wants to win. He wants to be powerful. All that stuff. That's, that's pretty typical. So yes, it is outside of the self. There you will find evil. But the ring is really fascinating. He takes the ring, which was a guy's wedding ring, the one that they designed. It's a wedding ring, not too really much different than mine. I don't know what that means. He says the point of the ring is, is that by itself, it's pretty innocent. But what happens to the person wearing it is they come under its power. What is that power? Not that it creates something new in the individual, but it reveals who the individual is deep down. So what happens? Frodo has to go destroy the ring, a little hobbit, the innocent among them all. And on the way, Boromir, whose people are being destroyed by Sauron, he says, you know what? If I had the power of the ring, I could protect my people. Sounds good, doesn't it? But it doesn't take much for one empowered who has the desire to protect becomes a tyrant who will come to destroy. Frodo makes it all the way to Mount Doom. All he has to do is take it off. He puts it around his neck. 
All he has to do is to drop it into the lava, the magma, and walk away. At the very last minute, he looks at his friend Sam. He says, no, it's mine. It's my precious. And he puts it on. Gollum is the very picture of what becomes of someone who surrenders to the influence of evil, who never gets rid of it. All the ring does is expose the human heart. You see, yes, evil is out there, yes. But it's in here. It's in here. Well, Christianity is rooted in the idea of embodiment and incarnation. That is to say that the physical world matters, reality matters, truth matters. History is littered with vain attempts to redefine, write off, redirect the reality of evil, human wickedness in particular. But where we'll go, Lord willing, next week is our deep need for a savior. Not a pill, not a politician, not a new system. If evil is real, we need a rescuer. Not someone just from the outside, but someone from the outside untainted who comes on the inside to destroy it. And that's where we get the Jesus crucified. But we've got to leave it right there. Let's go Lord in prayer. Father, I ask that you would help us to, to understand this. Not really something we, we usually talk about much. But given circumstances of the world right now, the world is really struggling. So we do what the world always does. We line up on our favorite side and, and we ignore some of the things going here because we really don't like that other side. Or we try to downplay certain evil. We'll say, yeah, but. Of course this has happened, but this happened before. So the whataboutism just causes us not to acknowledge the reality of evil. And we must be better than that.